It's always interesting to read the warnings that manufacturers put on labels. And they put them there supposedly to help protect people from potential side effects. Came across a few of those this past week that I found rather intriguing. On a dishwasher was this warning, do not let your kids play in the dishwasher. <laughs> or a boat that had on it a warning that says, never use lit match or open flame to check the fuel level. Or an iPod Shuffle had a warning on it that said, do not eat iPod Shuffle. Or there was a Razor scooter, and it said, this product moves when used. And then there was a washing machine with a label that said, do not put any person in this washer. And then this one, Clorox bleach wipes. Do not use as diaper wipes or for personal cleansing. And lastly, it was a vanishing fabric marker. Right? In other words, you write and eventually disappears. It said, should not be used as a writing instrument for signing checks or legal documents. <laughs> My point in sharing some of that is that manufacturers know they have a responsibility to protect those who use their products. And last week we attempted to establish that God, our Creator Father, issued His Ten Commandments for our protection and for our health. Unfortunately, they're a whole lot more sensible than the ones I just shared with you. Today we begin to look at the Ten. As I mentioned last week, because of the Snow Sunday, we're combining Commandments 1 and 2 today. And so I'd like you to turn to three passages of Scripture. First of all, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, which lists the first two commandments. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing my love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then turning to the prophet Ezekiel in the 14th chapter, there are many passages in the prophets which talk about what happens when we fail to follow God and his ways. I think one of the key ones is Ezekiel 14, the first eight verses. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Shall I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the people of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separates themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet to inquire of me. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. 
I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The third passage from the Gospel of John, part of a longer discourse in John 14, beginning to read at verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, May these words on a page, through the power of your Holy Spirit, come to life in us, so you might live through us. Accomplish your purpose now, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A man purchased a statue of Jesus, and he put it on his desk in his den. A few days later, his wife took it and put it on a table in the living room, which prompted their spry five-year-old daughter to say, So where are you going to put God? I think that's a pretty appropriate question, don't you? In your life, just where does God fit in? In essence, that's the thrust of the first commandment, as it levels a prohibition. You shall have no other gods. Now, to get an accurate picture of the context, we need to understand that only a few generations previous to this, Israel was, in fact, engaged in worshiping idols. And then she moved into Egypt, which was a nation filled with idol worship. Egyptians worshiped multiple gods. There was a god for every situation and every need. The Egyptians worshiped gods of the sun, the moon, the wind, fire, insect, and animals, to mention just a few. They had gods for the mountains, for the rivers, for the spring season, for fall planting, and for the forest. And perhaps their biggest and best known god was Baal, the fertility or sex idol. And there were many more. And each god had either a concrete representation or a prescribed ritual through which to focus upon it. And their religious life consisted of sacrificing to these gods in order to appease and please them and to gain their protection and provision for their lives. 
but it was a person's responsibility to keep their gods happy. It's no wonder God wanted not only to get his people out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of his people. So he commanded them to place no gods above himself. He, after all, made all the things and all the stuff these idols were made of. He is, as we saw last week, the God who cared for them, who had dramatically intervened in their lives and offered them the opportunity, if they would obey, to be his treasure, to be a very special people and nation. So in light of this, we can perhaps at least begin to define idolatry. The Heidelberg Catechism has a very succinct definition in question and answer 95. It says, idolatry is to imagine, cling to, or trust in something other than or in addition to the one true God who has been revealed in God's words. Now, I really like that definition, especially the second part, because I think that's where it strikes most of us. We like to worship God and God and country, God and prosperity, God and peace, God and family, God and church, God and success, God and, and you can fill in the blank with so much more. But anything we do not make captive and submissive to God and bring into His service becomes our idol. Harley Swiggum, who is the author of the Bethel Bible series, offered a more extensive definition of idolatry, a very poignant one. He said, an idol may be anyone or anything which replaces God as the source of our ultimate trust, which stands in the way of the Creator Father having His way in our lives, which makes of God a secondary interest and thereby leaves Him nothing more than our leftover loyalties or that which leads to an overpowering preoccupation with the present world, so much so that we forget our place in the next world. So for our purposes this morning, let's keep it simple and simply say that idol is whatever controls and motivates you. With that in mind, we can begin to identify some modern idolatry. While I could preach a sermon on everything I'm about to mention, I don't intend to do that. I simply want to get the juices flowing so that as you consider the commandment this week, you will begin to see and recognize those things in your life. Because some of those ancient gods still exist. Baal worship, for example, still exists today, today in those who revere sex and sexuality as the main thrust of life. Or Mars, the, the god of power, exists as nations build more and more war machines and build up more and more weapons, they say for the sake of peace, but more so for the sake of acquiring power and land. Vulcan still exists for those whose main purpose in life is acquiring possessions. Venus lingers around every time an ad promotes beauty as something to be coveted above all else. In fact, a few years ago I read that if current trends continued, a 10-year-old girl then, by the time she reached age 50, would have spent $450,000 on hair, makeup, elective surgeries, manicures, and pedicures. And guys, think of what you spend to build your abs. All right? 
People have made gods of their heroes, of military might and power, of technology, equality, and politics. Some make happiness their God, believing that happiness is the goal of life. And let's not forget the God of personal achievement or success, the drive to be number one ourselves. Some people even make a God of their faith. If only I have enough faith. If you had more faith, then this would happen or you could do this. Some make gods of their experience, thinking their experience is normative for everybody. Unless you've experienced faith like I have, you're not really a a full-blooded, true Christian. Others make a God of of love. Jesus was all about love. Just, Just love everybody. That's what it's all about. Idolatry. Anything that replaces God as the source of our ultimate trust, which stands in the way of our Father Creator having His way in our lives, whatever controls and motivates you. So the commandment levels the prohibition. But it also points to a position. You shall have no other gods before me. That passage in Ezekiel talked about before their face. Well, if it's before their face, it's before God's face as well. And before me has a double meaning. The sense of priority and the sense of place. In terms of priority, we just sort of talked about that. Giving a higher importance to something or someone other than God in our time, money, resources, and energy. But in terms of place, it means putting something in front of God. Covering up God. Idols obscure our vision of God. In an attempt to make that a little more graphic this morning, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination a little bit. Let's assume that this door here is whatever it is that you've put up that stands between you and God. So I go behind the door, and guess what? You can no longer see me. The only reason you know I'm here is because I'm talking. So, of course, if I would stop talking, you wouldn't even know I was here. If I stayed here for a few days, you might even forget that I was there. As long as there's something in front of us, something between us, you really, well, it's out of sight and it's out of mind. You have no clue to where God might be. It is so easy to lose track of God. Out of sight. Out of mind. That's why you had no idea where I was. And isn't that what happens when we lose track of God? We really have no idea whatsoever where God is. We lose track of Him. So, what about your life? What have you laid in front of God? Is there anything or anyone that is demanding more time, money, resources, thoughts, and energy than you are giving to God? Is there anything lessening the priority or place of God in your life? Mother Teresa was once asked, If God believes in us, why don't we believe in Him? Her response was, distractions. Too many distractions. And that's true, isn't it? All the stuff in our lives 
cause us to lose focus on God. And God wants us to get rid of all of the distractions in our lives so we do not lose sight of Him. Because out of sight, out of mind, we lose track of God just like you lost track of me. And when we lose sight of God, life falls apart. Think about the Philistines when they captured the Ark of God in battle against the Israelites. They figured if the Ark was a good God for the Israelites, it would be a good God for them. So they, they added the God of Israelites to their pantheon and they took it into the temple of Dagon and placed it next to Dagon himself. Dagon was, according to most ancient accounts, sort of a human fish god opposite of a mermaid. He had body of a human and the head of a fish. Here's what happened according to 1 Samuel 5.3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But that didn't discourage them. Scripture says they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Now, I love the humor of that story, but it has a serious point. God will allow no other gods in his presence. So if you would have God as your God, you must rid your heart of all other idols and remove all that stands between you and God. Prophet Jeremiah wrote in the ninth chapter, this is in the message translation, I asked, is there anyone around bright enough to tell us what's going on here? Anyone who has the inside story from God and can let us in on it? Why is the country wasted? Why no travelers in this desert? Here's God's answer. Because they abandoned my plain teaching. They wouldn't listen to anything I said, refused to live the way I told them to, Instead, they lived any way they wanted to, and they took up the Baal gods, who they thought would give them what they wanted, following the example of their parents. And this is the consequence. God of angel armies says so. I'll feed them with pig slop. I'll give them poison to drink. Then I'll scatter them far and wide among godless peoples that neither they nor their parents have ever heard of, and I'll send death in pursuit until there's nothing left of them. It's not a whole lot different than what Paul wrote. Last week I encouraged you to read Romans 1.18 and following, and I will do that again. Because Paul wrote, writes that when God does not have priority, the result is moral degradation. Because people turn to other gods, Paul says God removed his hands of protection. God said, okay, have your way. Go ahead and reap what you sow. And Romans 1.29 tells us the result. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. The position we give to God determines the direction of our lives. But thankfully, in addition to the prohibition and a position, the commandment points us also to a pathway. God is concerned about the intensity of our relationship with Him. Joy Davidman, who is the wife of C.S. Lewis, wrote an excellent book on the study of the Ten Commandments. She aptly wrote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me must include thou shalt have me. Unlike worship of idols, we don't serve God for what we can get. 
from Him for what He can do for us, but to show Him the seriousness of our love for Him. Are you serious enough about God that you are willing to be possessed by Him? Can you say with the Heidelberg Catechism that you would give up anything rather than do the least thing contrary to God's will? That's intensity. Remember Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. All, 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 all. That's intensity. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And we're told that he sweat drops of blood as he prayed it. That's intensity. You see, the truth is, we will always live in submission to someone or something. The exodus from Egypt did not end submission for the Israelites. It was just an exchange of masters. Who will be your master? Are you willing to go wherever God sends you? To do whatever God asks you whenever God asks you? That's intensity. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. That's the truth. But that's intensity. And we develop this intensity by making God the sole aim of our lives. That's what Deuteronomy 6, beginning verse 5, is all about. Again, the message translation. Love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love Him with all that's in you. Love Him with all you've got. Write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you and then get them inside your children. Talk about them wherever you are, sitting at home, walking in the street. Talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you fall into bed at night. Tie them under your hands and foreheads as a reminder. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your homes and on your city gates. So in practical terms, how do we make God the sole aim of our lives? I think that's where the second commandment kicks in. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath and the waters below. Focus on the proper image of God. In our culture, now more than ever, image is important. Politicians, athletes, Hollywood stars and starlets often hire image makers or, or spin doctors. Why? To be sure that, that they have a good, acceptable public image so they can be popular and successful. And while we may not hire people to help us, most of us need to admit that at least to some degree we're concerned about our image, about how others see us, and react and respond to us. And it's no different with God. God, too, is concerned with His image. With how others perceive Him and understand Him. So He lays down the law and stipulates that no images of Him are to be worshipped. Now let's be clear that it's not a ban on all images. 
God knew that as humans we need help sometimes imaging or seeing the unseen. So, for example, when God gave instructions for setting up the tabernacle and building the temple, he carefully laid out some elaborate images that the Israelites were to use. But these were to be symbols or aids to point beyond themselves to some characteristic of God. But they were not God and therefore were not to be worshipped as God. People were not to bow down to them and put it on a par with God. Maybe a weak example, but it's an example. I, many of you know I wear a cross. I have several different crosses that I wear to remind me of the fact that I belong to the risen, victorious Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with that. But suppose I had gotten up this morning and got here to church ready to preach and thought, oh, I forgot my cross. What am I going to do? I don't have my cross on. My cross will become an idol. That's what God speaks against in this commandment. In fact, it says God is jealous for His image. He will not let anyone or anything spoil His image. God loves us so much, He doesn't want any false image to turn our focus off of Him and lose track of Him. How do you think Barb, as my wife, would feel if in my wallet I carried a picture of some other woman, slighted, angry, at least I hope so, <laughs> jealous. Why? Because it takes my focus off of her and it demeans her and diminishes my love for her. She has a right to be jealous for her image. Philip was wrestling with a very similar kind of thing when he asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. He just wanted to see what God looked like. After all, isn't it easier to believe in something that we can see? So Jesus' answer is instructive. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Jesus is the image of God. Do you want to see a picture of God? Then look at Jesus. The disciples in the early church caught the idea. In Colossians, Paul wrote, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The Greek word for image is E-I-K-O-N, from which we get I-C-O-N, icon. Jesus is God's icon in the world, the physical representation. Hebrews 1.3 puts that the Son is the exact representation of His being. And that's important to know because we become like what we worship. James Michener wrote a novel in which people were digging up the ruins of an ancient civilization. And they began to see how the gods that, those, that the ancient civilization had worshipped shaped who they were. And finally, one of the characters says, you know, if they had a different god, they would have been a different people. We become like what we worship. And if we worship idols, then we are not the unique special persons God called us to be. Psalm 115, verse 8. And those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Among other things, this means 
The only way to worship God is to worship Jesus. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. If any worship service here at Hope fails to focus on Jesus, we have failed to worship and we have broken the commandment. If any sermon preached from this pulpit, whether it's Pastor Kevin, myself, or someone else, fails to point us to Jesus, the preacher has broken the second commandment. For God's heart is seen in Jesus. Focus on Jesus, who is the image of God. If we keep Jesus in front of God, we become like Him. Did you catch the point? Jesus is not the only image of God. Through Jesus, we are the image of God. Started way back in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. You and I were created to be a picture, a likeness, an icon of God in the world. Now it's true that because of sin, we are not the perfect image, but we are still His image. And what's even more exciting is we are becoming more and more like Jesus every day. We often hear Romans 8.28, how God works together all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we tend to stop there. But it's verse 29 which brings it all together. Verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Why does God still pay attention to us? Because of Jesus. Why does God still value us? Because of Jesus. Why does God spend so much time working things out in our lives so we can be like Jesus? I'm going to ask you to get out of your comfort zones for just a minute here. I want you to turn to a person next to you or in front of you or behind you, and I want you to exchange these following phrases with each other. All right? I'm going to ask you to speak these words. Turn to somebody and get ready to go. All right? I'll say the phrases, then you say them to each other. You are glorious. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God did a masterful job creating you. You are the image of God. You are becoming like Jesus. I feel like a Michigan football player... Anybody have it any better than this? Nobody. (laughs) All right, you know who we are, and we're becoming like Jesus. But here's the point. We are the image of God, not only in who we are and what we're becoming, but we are also to be His image in the way we live. The only image God allows of Himself other than Jesus is a community of people bent doing His will on earth. I love what John Calvin said. We are not to make images. We are to be His image. Jesus was once asked, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus said, show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a coin. And Jesus said, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then He said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, we are to give to God what bears His image, and that means we are to give ourselves to Him completely. We are His representation. We are His reflection, His likeness, His picture in the world. I want to lift up two 
well-known athletes who I think can teach us what it means to have our lives speak of Jesus. The first is Blake Corum, seen here holding his Bible. If you don't know, he's a record-breaking running back of the national champion Michigan Wolverines. Just had to throw that piece in there. He's repeatedly given of himself and his resources to help others. In fact, his generosity led to him receiving the Collegiate Social Service Award last year. In his speech as he received the award, he spoke openly about his faith in Jesus Christ and God's Word. He said, I'm a firm believer in Christ. Acts 20.35 says, In all things I have shown you about working hard. In this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's why I'm here. I'm more than an athlete. Jesus' representation, reflection, and likeness, God's picture in the world. The other is NFL rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud of the Houston, Texas. He's been very vocal about his faith in Jesus Christ. He often even wears crosses on his thigh pads. After a win that got them into the playoffs, he was interviewed by NBC. And here's the first words out of his mouth. First and foremost, I just want to give all the glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Later he expanded on it and he said, When I got to college, I found Christ for myself. It's definitely something that I'm still learning to this day. I'm definitely not perfect. It does keep me grounded. It does keep me humble. Just because I know anything can be stripped away at any point. I feel like God put me on this platform to preach His Word. Jesus laid His life on the cross for us. I really believe that. This is bigger than just football. Football is my platform. Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ is my purpose. I think that's what God wants. Jesus' representation, reflection, and likeness, God's picture in our world. So let's bring it all home. This week, how will you be God's image in your world? How will your lips and life speak and portray Jesus to a lost, hurting, angry, fractured world? Let go of all the distractions and live and love like Jesus because it's only through our unyielding commitment to Jesus that God will be seen in us. I love the challenge that preacher and author David Platt gave. He exhorts us, let's sacrifice it all for the glory of Christ among a billion people who have not even heard the gospel, for the sake of men, women, and children who are starving, suffering, and dying every single day. For the millions in your city and my city who do not know Christ and are headed for a Christless eternity. For ourselves, for our churches, for our families, for our children who will come behind us. For this, all this and more, let's sacrifice it all. Only then will people know what God looks like. Image is everything. But the only image that is important is the image of Jesus Christ stamped on your heart, in your mind, and in your life. I can think of no better way to conclude this message than to use John's conclusion of his first epistle. 
1 John 5, starting verse 18. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely. The evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so we can know the true God. And then He brings it home. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and He is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And all God's people said, Amen. Lord God, Your word is sometimes hard and harsh, but it is so full of health and strength and power. With the hymn writer of old, we say, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Holy Spirit, so work in us that our lives this week speak Jesus. That in the midst of a difficult world, Jesus is proclaimed. That in the midst of questions we find difficult to answer, Jesus may be proclaimed. That in the midst of all the confusion, Jesus may be proclaimed through us. Holy Spirit, teach us and empower us to speak Jesus and always say, do and think. Help us clear away the idols, get rid of the clutter and distractions, and sacrifice it all for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.